Amen. It is good to be in the house of the Lord on this Sunday. It's interesting, God gave us a little taste of what hell is like on Wednesday with all the temperatures that we've had. So if you thought that was hot, then you definitely want to be sure that you're right with the Lord because hell is hot. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and we will be reading verses 1 through 4. And I don't have a very deep or profound thought to share with you today, but this is just what the Lord has given me in this season. And this this word is most certainly uh, imperative for me as it is for you, uh, that I believe that we really need to hear this word, and I believe it will be a blessing unto all of you that hear it. Uh, when you get to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, say amen. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse, verses 1 through 4. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. I want to read verse number two, because from there I'll primarily be taking my thought, which simply says this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to turn to your neighbor and ask him this question. What are you looking at? The title of my message today is what are you looking at? What are you looking at? Again, nothing, nothing deep or profound. But I believe that the body of Christ at large is looking at the wrong thing. And I, it is my objective, my endeavor to get our sights back on the right prize, on the right goal, the right target and objective. And so we're to go to the Lord in prayer. I, I, I know I say this every time I preach, but that is truly my desire is for the Holy Spirit to truly speak and for Him to have preeminence in this house. My objective always in preaching is for the salvation of sinners. And so as I preach today, I'm looking to convict, I'm looking to compel those to come unto the cross of Christ. That if you've not yet come unto Him, that you need to do so. It is imperative that you act in this hour and that you look towards Jesus as your source and help, especially in this dire season that we are in. It is imperative of us to put our gaze upon Christ and Him alone. Let us pray today. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word, for your holy, precious promises that are written in your word. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, have your way in me. Oh God, even as you said in your word, I say today that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I pray, oh God, help me to be a conduit to which your presence, your spirit, your word, your, your reaching hand, oh God, is able 
able to move, grab our hearts, pull us from the fire, pull us our eyes back unto you as truly being our source, as truly being the author of eternal salvation, as being our foundation from which we stand. Have your way in this place. Let the atmosphere be ready, O oh God, to receive the miraculous power of the Holy Ghost. Burn within us, incinerate, O oh God, obliterate, annihilate, extricate anything that is unlike you in the mighty name of Jesus. Let Holy Ghost fire, let Pentecostal fire fall in this place in the name of Jesus. Convict us, compel us, bring us to an altar of repentance by which we may put our eyes truly on you in turn from our wicked ways. Have your way in this place. We thank you for what you've done, for what you're doing and what you're going to do. We give you all the praise and the glory and in Jesus' name, let the church of the living God say amen. You may be seated. Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. It uh, tells the account of the patriarch Abram who would later be called Abraham. And regarding his commission, his calling out of the pagan nation from which he was associated with and walking into his destiny. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, if you see in verse number one, God gave Abram a specific command. That when he commissioned him, the very first thing he told him to do was to remove himself from the location where he was, from the atmosphere that he was, the, the, the people that he surrounded himself. He said, get out of the country, remove yourself from those that you fellowship with and associate with, particularly your kindred and those of your father's house, your family. He said, remove yourself completely from here. And once you do so, I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you, a land of promise because Abram was a nomad. He was part of a nomadic society that wandered around different lands with his herds in order to find good places to graze and to feed his flock. But God said, I want to take you to a land of promise, a land that I am going to show you. And so now God gives him this very specific command. And now here's, here's the thing that when he was to leave, when Abram was to leave, he was to separate himself completely from his relatives and family. But Abram did not fully follow the commandment. He did not fully separate himself because he took his nephew with him. Now in Genesis 12 verse number 4, it says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. This decision, this what seemingly is a minute decision to allow his nephew to accompany him, it set himself up for trouble, for issues, and for drama and strife within his own household. That there was the competition, so to speak, for resources between Abram's uh, family and his, his household and the household of Lot. Lot had his own thing. He had his own herds, his own, his own family, his own thing going on. And the two were, were walking together, going supposedly to the land of promise, and that their relationship became contentious. In Genesis chapter 13, verse number 
chapter 14, the Bible says this, and the Lord said unto Abram after that, I'm sorry, not verse 14, verse 5, go to verse 5, verse 5, and Lot also which went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled there, in, dwelled them in the land. So Abram then proposed here, okay, because there's strife, because we don't have enough resources, you're too big and I'm too big to stay here, that uh, I don't want there to be any more strife, that we need to separate ourselves. And God's like, well, duh, that's what I told you to do in the first place. When I told you to go to the place that I wanted to show you, I told you to completely disassociate, separate yourself from anyone that is associated with your family, your kindred. Get out of the country. Leave everything behind. And because of that decision, there was strife and there was now drama. So now Abram comes up with a brilliant idea, which was to finally do what God told him to do in the first place, which was to separate himself. To separate himself. Now look what happens when Abram finally obeys and separates himself from Lot. Genesis 13 verse 14. Verse 14 of Genesis chapter 13. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Now notice this, that God did not actually show Abram the land that he wanted him to see until Lot left. Now why is that? Why was it such a big deal for him to disassociate himself from the family? Well when we look at the name Lot and what it means, we see something very interesting. The name Lot means means a cover or a veil his name means a cover or a veil and the thing is when Abram finally separated himself from the covering or the veil then God said now look lift up your eyes and see what I have for you There are some people that you're associating yourself with that are covering you, veiling you from seeing the promises and the blessings that God has in your life. And God is telling you, you've got to cut the umbilical cord. You've got to separate yourself because they are blinding you from seeing the plan and the destiny and the promise I have for your life. God is saying, take the veil off of your eyes. He said, what's lot left? He said, now lift up your eyes. Open your eyes now. That lot is gone. Now that this drama is gone. Now that this past association is gone. Lift up your eyes and now see the promise. See the blessing that I have for you. What was Abram looking at? He was looking at a veil. Thinking that he was walking fully in God's promises and God's blessing when there was a veil that was clouding his ability to see. And it was not till the veil was removed that God said, lift up your eyes and see what I have for you. And God is now calling the church to disassociate itself from things of this world because it is blinding the church from seeing the truth. The church has lost discernment. The church has lost conviction and holiness and truly seeing what the enemy is up to because the devil has pulled an okie doke on us and put a veil over our eyes 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. That's why you can't receive the blessings that other people are getting, because you're too blind to see by the things of this life, by the cares of this life. And God is saying, separate yourself. Separate yourself from carnality. Separate yourself from worldliness. 1 John 2, 15 through 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. The pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world will blind you and veil you from seeing the true heavenly riches that are afforded to you when you become a believer in Christ. And everything that Satan has devised and has done is to trip us up, is to distract us, to misdirect us, and to get us to focus on on that which matters not, that which will not bring us everlasting life, that which will only lead us to depravity, that will will only destroy us and and completely obliterate us and separate us from God. But God is calling the church to get away from these things, get away from politics, get away from Netflix, get away from social media, get away from that relationship, and focus on me, on Christ and alone, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Philippians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus. The thing is that the enemy will always get you to do is to get you to look in a rearview mirror, get you to look away from the things from the future, from the destiny that God has in your life. But Christ has called the church again to look towards Christ as the source, looking to Jesus as your future looking to Jesus as your provider as your supplier, as your protector as your healer, as your deliverer with this in mind let's take a look now back at the book of Hebrews for us to properly exegete and understand what we read in our initial text we need to give some sort of context to the book as a whole that the book of Hebrews is an interesting epistle and that we don't fully know who the writer is. Traditionally, scholars have believed that Paul is the writer due to its literary style, but most scholars still are debating regarding it and are unsure as to who wrote the book. The audience of this book is actually Jewish Christians, hence the name, the book of Hebrews. <laughs> it's to the Hebrews. Uh, primarily a Jewish audience that was very familiar with the laws of Moses of the Torah. And so the thing is this, though, this audience that this writer of Hebrews was writing to was living in Jerusalem and was enduring extremely harsh persecution and was considering going back to the following the laws of Moses. Judaism was becoming all the more attractive as there were Judaizers who stated that a person couldn't be saved without following the law. Judaizers were those who were emphasizing the following the laws of Moses, that you could not be saved or filled with the Holy Ghost unless that you adhered to the laws of Moses and following all the dietary laws and worshiping on the Sabbath and bringing your ox and your sheep and your turtle doves to the temple. They really emphasize that. And then, so the thing is, they're under intense pressure, this particular body of believers. They are getting persecuted by the Jews, by the Pharisees. And it's unpopular to be a Christian. Uh, Judaism, for the most part, was an accepted or tolerated religion under the Roman Empire. Christianity, however, was not. And so this church was under an immense pressure to completely negate and abandon their faith and go back to what they were before they were Christians, which were just law-abiding Jews. So now the writer of Hebrews 
has to do two things whenever he's trying to write to his audience. Number one, he needs to get his audience to understand that Christ is better than the law. So they will not go back to what God brought them out of, which was out of the law of Moses. Number two, he must encourage his audience to endure the great persecution that they are suffering for Christ. So now to accomplish this, the writer must put his audience focus back on Christ and not on the law of Moses, nor on the troubles that they are facing. The law of Moses was comfortable. It was something that they were familiar with and was something they relied upon to be justified before God. We look, and that is basically the story throughout humanity, that we look to something else to bolster our position, our standing in relation to God. That's what pretty much most religion is. It's a man's attempt to make itself feel righteous before a truly righteous and holy God. When you look at the story of Adam and Eve, that whenever they sinned, they got themselves fig leaves and they covered themselves, covered their nakedness. But that covering was not good enough for them, but instead God had to provide for them some skins to truly cover their nakedness. Because our righteousness or our sin can only be dealt with when it comes from God and not from ourselves. Anything that you try to do to make yourself feel good, make yourself feel righteous, make yourself feel holy, is all inept. It's all as filthy rags, as the Bible says. We must rely on that which is supplied by Christ. And Christ alone. And we all do this. Whenever we're under pressure, we always look for something to comfort us, something to make us feel okay, something that's that we're familiar with in order to get us through this present trial. Well, if you used to eat a lot of ice cream before you got saved, or perhaps you had an eating disorder, and you start feeling pressure, the first thing you want to do is just go to Dunkin' Donuts or go to uh, Baskin Robbins or somewhere and just indulge, just get a bucket and just inhale the thing, right? If watching soap operas was your thing to deal with stress, and that's the thing you want to go to whenever you're stressed out. Perhaps it was smoking cigarettes, or perhaps it was drinking alcohol, perhaps it was overdosing on drugs. We always go back to that which is comfortable and that which is familiar. Whenever we're under pressure. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, no, that Jesus is better than the thing that you left. And that he is able to carry you through the current circumstances and tribulation that you are fighting through. So throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer is trying to show that Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to you. That Jesus is superior to your present circumstances. That Jesus is superior to that thing that you used to use to comfort yourself and get you through your troubles. So we see in Hebrews chapter 1 that the writer starts off by stating that Jesus is better than the angels. And he uses titles like Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 says being made so much better than the angels as if by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That Jesus is greater than Gabriel. Jesus is greater than Michael. He's greater than all the archangels the Ophanim and the Seraphim and the Cherubim. As a matter of fact it's them that are worshiping him and crying holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. That Christ is better than any angelic being, better than any idol, better than any deity, better than any God, better than any substance that you can possibly think of. In chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews tries to point out that Jesus was made like unto us, that he suffered even as we did and actually suffered in our place. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, but 
we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man for became him for whom all are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering that we serve a God who was not aloof and ignorant to our sufferings but he came down and became one of us that he tasted death for us took the punishment upon himself for us that we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was tempted in all points even as we are yet without sin the writer of Hebrews said he wants to know that Jesus has been through what you've been through Jesus has suffered Jesus has been rejected Jesus has been isolated Jesus has been persecuted and that he's not asking you to do something that he himself never went through himself don't you understand Hebrew church of Jerusalem that this Jesus tasted death this Jesus suffered for you so you can suffer for him I must somehow convince you to look at Jesus and Jesus alone. In Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus, I'm sorry, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is better than Moses. And he calls him the apostle and high priest of our profession. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 3. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. That Moses he gave the law. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Salvation, the true author of eternal salvation came from Christ that Christ is greater than Moses Christ is greater than the law because they all did drink from that rock and that rock was Christ the rock that Moses stood on was the foundation of Jehovah Jireh Jehovah Sidkenu the Lord our righteousness the I am that I am the rock the foundation that carried him through the weariness because Jesus is a rock in a weary land it was Jesus that held Moses Jesus that carried Moses out Jesus that brought him out greater than Moses I must somehow convince these Hebrews to look at Jesus and Jesus alone. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, he then tries to show that those who believe in Jesus, they enter into an eternal Sabbath. You no longer have to keep a Sabbath on a specific day, but that when you believe in Jesus, you enter into an eternal Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 3 says this, For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation, of the world that when you enter into Jesus when you believe in Jesus you cease from doing your works and Christ begins to work inside of you you no longer have to try to take a rest or have to work or to labor anymore to be righteous before God because Jesus is doing all of the work I cease from my work and Jesus takes over I'm not righteous because I followed some seven step self help program I'm righteous because the blood of Jesus was applied to my heart and transformed my sin infested soul into the righteousness of God because I am that I am by the grace of God because I believe and trust in God alone Ephesians 3 verse 20 says now in him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think of according to the power that worketh within us I've got a power that works inside of me that causes me to rest when chaos is around me when the storms are blowing up and the waves are crashing in me I've got a river of life flowing out of me makes the lame to walk and the blind to see opens prison doors and sets the captive free I've got a river of life flowing out of me I've entered into his rest because I trust in Jesus and nobody else what are you looking at church 
Are you looking at your problems? Are you looking at your bills? Are you looking at the doctor report? Or are you looking under Jesus? Praise God. Hebrews chapter 5. The writer of Hebrews says that Christ is after the order of Melchizedek. That he was not after a carnal or human priesthood. But he's after an eternal priesthood. Hebrews 5 verse 5 says, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son today, have I begotten thee. As he saith also another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That a human being made after the Levitical law was not good enough or righteous enough to represent us before a holy and righteous God. But Jesus Christ who is the mediator who is the intercessor who is the advocate who is the bridge between who is the way the truth and the life of he who connects us unto the father he came and stood in our place as an ambassador and representative unto, unto God and made us perfect unto, unto God completely Jesus Christ was not after a human priesthood but is after the order of Melchizedek who had no beginning of days nor ending of days but is eternal who is everlasting omnipotent omniscient omnipresent the only living true God So on and on, the writer of Hebrews shows that Christ is supreme, showing that Christ has fulfilled all the laws of Moses, showing that Christ is the only sufficient sacrifice for sins. For the blood of bulls and goats could not take away our sins. All they could do is remind us of how much of a sinner that we are. And only the blood of Christ could ever take away and wash away the iniquity, wash away the transgression, the filthiness, the depravity of mankind that, is, that infests his soul. And so, when we get to chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews starts talking about all these people who had faith and endured hardship and persecution. It's in Hebrews that we get the definition of faith. That Hebrews 11, 1 says that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We, we find out in, in Hebrews 11, in verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him out. And he begins to list all these people who overcame their adversity through faith, faith in something that was to come, the Messiah who was to come, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And throughout, he says, by faith they did this, they overcame came adversity. They went through trials of fire. They overcame the water. Some were sawn asunder but did not deny their faith in the one and only true God. And then we come to chapter 12 which is our main text. He says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. He's referencing chapter 11. He lists all these heroes of the faith from Noah to Abraham to Moses to all, I mean, all, Samson. He lists all these heroes of the faith, David, all of them, uh, Rahab, all of them. He lists all these and he says, look, we are compassed about. We are surrounded by a multitude of witnesses like someone sitting in an arena watching gladiators duke it out. That they are in the heavens watching us. We are compassed about by such a great cloud, a multitude of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. One of the main reasons that people get into car accidents is they're just not watching the road. We're on our phone. We're, you know, looking at a hot babe that's walking down the street. We're whatever. We're distracted. And because we're, our eyes are not matching up with our, with our hands, we crash and we make ourselves shipwrecked. There is a serious hand-eye coordination in the church problem. That what, what, what we're seeing in the text is not lining up with what we're doing in our actions. 
And because they were tripping over and falling all over the place trying to get someplace. Because my actions are not lining up with my vision. I'm looking at all this carnal stuff and then trying to do Jesus. Those two things don't mix. And you're tripping up and falling over yourself. And that's why the writer of Hebrews said, we got to remove all this stuff, all this law stuff that you guys are trying to bring into here. All this stuff, all the, per- all this, the, the, the trouble, the tribulation you're trying to bring into this thing. Get rid of it. Don't let it beset you. Don't let it trip you up. But let us run this race with patience. We need to have a spiritual garage sale, so to speak, or give it away to Satan's goodwill or something. We need to get rid of all the stuff that's just taking up space. In our, in our heart, in our soul, in our, in our lives, alright? Get, get rid of it. We need to make some room. That's what this church is called, where God has made room for you. Oh, I wish God would make some room inside of my heart. I wish God, I wish God would, would, would take away all this stuff that's cluttering up my heart. You can do that. He can do that today if you will let Him and look unto Jesus fully and completely. The Bible says that we need to remove everything that is unlike Him. Anything that would easily beset us. Verse number two. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer then says with all that background. He says you need to look unto Jesus. Because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the perfect example of how to live a good, holy, righteous and Christian life. And then he goes on to say that this Jesus. That he was crucified. But he, the way he got to the crucifixion is that he set something before him. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Greek word there for joy is chara. It means joy, gladness, joyfulness, joyfully, the joy received from you, the cause of occasion of joy or persons who are one's joy. There was a joy, there was a specific joy that Jesus kept in front of him, that he kept his gaze transfixed on, that enabled him to endure the brutal whippings of the Roman soldiers, that enabled him to endure the mockerings and having his hair ripped from his face and the being spat on and the crown of thorns being thrust into his skull and being suspended between heaven and earth by his own body weight as he was nailed to the gibbet of the cross and those mocking him say, if you be the son of God, come down from the cross. What enabled him to do so is that there was a joy that was in front of him. There was some joy that his eyes were so focused on that it enabled him to endure death itself and to overcome death itself. Now, I've seen this happen all the time that we get so into something, we forget about everything else that's going on. I see this with my children all the time. My children, they'll be watching a TV show or playing a video game, and I'll be yelling at them like, hey, go clean up this. And they're just like, not even there. I'm sorry, I'm complaining again. Anyway. They're just spaced out. It's completely spaced out. Just not, not there. They're so lost, so far gone in this situation. Nothing else exists. And when Jesus was on the cross, there was something he was looking at that caused him to endure the cross. I want to try and figure out what was this joy that would cause Christ to stay to the cross John 17, verse 13. 
This is Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, and now come I to thee. And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I came here so that my joy might be fulfilled in all of humanity. That's what, you know, we sing the song at Christmas, joy to the world. He came to bring us joy. But what is this joy that he wants to be fulfilled inside of us? Turn me to John chapter 15 and looking at verse number 9. John 15 verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, this is Jesus speaking, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be filled. What was Jesus' joy? It was regarding his love. That's what he just said. He said in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. I came so that you could truly experience my love inside of you. I want you to experience my love inside of you. I want to not only just you experience my love inside of you, I want to be in you. Because the means by which the joy is allocated is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That when you get the Holy Spirit, you experience joy like nothing else. That when the God of the heavens and the earth comes in to dwell in your heart, in your spirit, you experience the love like you cannot define. You experience a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. And when Jesus was on the cross, the hot Palestinian son baking him as he was bleeding to death and then mocking him, he only had one thing on his mind was how much he loved us. And that one day I'm going to send my love and my spirit to indwell inside us. That was his joy. Philippians 2, 1 says this, Paul kind of elaborating on this point. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now I want you to understand something. That how he was able to do this, how was it? That he was being asphyxiated to death. His own body weight crushing him. In, as he was hanging on the cross, he was able to keep the idea of us. Of one day, I'm going to love you. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. I'm going to redeem you from, my, from your sins. How was he able to do that? The writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Here's how he did it. Despising the shame despising the shame the way he was able to keep his focus on his joy was that he despised the shame the Greek word that's there I'm not going to try and pronounce it I'll start speaking in tongues but the Greek word that's there says to condemn it means to condemn to despise disdain or to think little or nothing of 
I'll repeat that again. It means to think little or nothing of. He looked at the cross and as he was on there, began to despise, which means he began to think very little of it. What? He thought little of the cat of nine tails impaling him and ripping out whole chunks of flesh. He, he thought little of the Pharisees mocking him and spitting on him. He, th- he thought little of all of dying and suffering and being put to an open shame. He hung there naked on the cross, completely humiliated. But the Bible says that he despised, he thought little of the shame. And by thinking little of the shame, it magnified the joy that I'm going to have when I have a relationship with Sister Johnny. When I have a relationship with somebody else in the audience, with those that are li- that's what caused him to hang there. The Bible said that he set the joy before him. And the way that he kept the joy is that he thought little of what he was going through right, right now. And I tell you, that's why Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's our example because of, even as Jesus thought little of being crucified, I think I can think little of the trouble I'm going through. I think I can think little of the hell I'm going through. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, For which cause we faint not, though the outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day day by day for our light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that while we look not at the things which are seen because the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal let me tell you what are you looking at church because if you're looking at something physical it's temporal and it's going to vanish away but we don't look at things that are temporary we look at things that are eternal because I walk by faith and not by sight and when God says that I I'm forgiven. When God says my sins have been washed away. When God says that you are righteous and holy in my sight. And one day, one get up the morning, you're going to come be with me. I believe it and that gives me joy. Woo! God, that gives me joy. All my sins have been washed away. All my transgressions have been removed. When it gives me joy. The Bible said in Psalm 51 verse 12. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me thy free spirit. Psalm 1611 says. Thou wilt show me the path of life. For in thy presence is the fullness of joy. At the right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I keep my eyes on Jesus. Because he's the lily of the valley. And he's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. I keep my eye on Jesus who's the, who's the rose of Sharon who is the Alpha and the Omega I keep my eyes on Jesus who is Jehovah Jireh, my supplier the one who provides for me in my time of need I keep my eyes on Jesus who is my light and my salvation who is my deliverer, my desire who is my fortress, my shield my buckler, my, my glory and the lift up of my head I keep my eyes on Jesus who is my redeemer, wonderful counselor Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I keep my eyes on Jesus, who is the bright and morning star, who is the day springer, the day star that rises in our hearts, who is the resurrection, who is the life, who is the rock of ages. I keep my eyes on Jesus, the bishop of my soul, the good shepherd, the lamb of God, which was slain from the foundations of the world. I keep my eyes on Jesus, El Olam, the everlasting eternal God, El Yana, the most high God. I keep my eyes on Jesus. I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from which cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. Keep your eyes on Jesus. What are you looking at? 
What are you looking at? Your trouble is nothing compared to God. For men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Romans 8 31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall not with him also freely give us all things? Woo, Jesus. Stop looking at your trouble and start looking at Jesus. Stop looking at that because that's not going to save you. Prozac isn't going to save you. That welfare check ain't going to save you. Food stamps aren't going to save you. Biden's shoulder ain't going to save you. I don't know Trump ain't going to save you. Nothing's going to save you except Jesus. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? I close with this verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. My God. From the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing is able to separate us. If we would just get a made up mind. To keep our eyes on Jesus. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on thee. That I've got to keep my mind. On the rock Jesus Christ. That we would not be weary in well doing. For in due season we shall reap. If we faint not. There's nothing that can separate you. If you get a made up mind. But I'm putting my hand in the hand of the man. That's got the plan. I'm putting my hand in Jesus. What are you looking at church? Let's stand. I got to quit. Don't be discouraged. Hebrew church in Jerusalem. Jesus is superior and Jesus will carry you through the circumstance that you are fighting. It is not greater. It is not stronger. It is not better than the rock Jesus Christ. For Christ is the bread of life. He is the fountain of living waters. He is the door of the sheep. He's the way out of no way. Don't let the devil pull an okie doke on you and get you looking at the wrong thing and miss it. That's what magic is. Magic is just misdirection. You ever watch these guys, these magicians or illusionists, you know? And then they get like the, the most attractive woman possible in the most skimpiest outfit possible. Just like... Whoa, how did that car get there? You were watching. <laughs> well, how did that problem get there? You were watching. How did it end up in this mess? You were watching. Why am I sinking, Jesus? P- Peter, you weren't watching me. The storm and the lightning started flashing. You took your eyes off me, and so you started sinking. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. I preach this message because just as the Hebrew church, they lost their understanding of the sufficiency, the centrality, the supremacy of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. 
Christ did not come to establish some sort of political faction. He didn't necessarily come to give you the latest blessing. He came as to save us from our sins. God does not serve me, I serve him. I do what he says. He's not some genie in a bottle. He's not a galactic cosmic vending machine that I put in the right amount of prayer that he'll give me my blessing. No, he's the one and only true living God. And I need to get in an alignment with what he says in his word. I've got to look at him and no one and nothing else. Not your uncle, not your cousin, not your daddy, not your mammy, whatever. You need to look at Jesus and him alone. Him alone. I don't know who this message was for, but perhaps you've been struggling. You've been like the Hebrew church. You're getting persecuted and you're feeling tempted to pick up that bottle one more time. Having drunk in years, but now the pressure is so hard. I want to go back to this because this is where I was comfortable. The pressure is so hard. I, w- I want to take those drugs again. Or maybe I should call, call up old girl again. I haven't spoken to her in years. Maybe she can make me feel better. Or call up old, old boy. Maybe he can make me feel better. Let me holler at him for a minute. Right? You want to run back to all those fools that God delivered you from. Why? Because it's comfortable. That's what the children of Israel did. Oh, that was so much better in Egypt when I was getting beat up every day. Nothing's wrong. It was better back then. No, that's, that's how we think. We're always looking in the rear view. But Jesus, he's in the front. Looking to Jesus. Who is the author and the finisher of our faith? I give you this opportunity to look unto Jesus. To look at him completely in all of his glory. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. The expressed image of his person. That if we understand how God is, we look at Jesus. We must look at Jesus. And the thing is, we do that by by faith. By trusting in what God's word says. God's word says that first of all, we need to repent. We need to repent of our sins and turn away from our wicked ways. We need to completely abandon, disassociate ourselves from everything that has attached us to our past. And embrace Christ and his cross. We need to be baptized in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. We need to, to symbolize the burying the de- the, of the dead of the old man and the old lifestyle. And we need to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost because that's God's joy. When he gets to live inside you and commune with you and fellowship with you and have a relationship with you. I know the pressure is hot. I know you're buckling. I know you're at your last wit's end and you're about to completely just lose your mind from the pressure that's surrounding you and enveloping you. But God is just saying, if you would just look towards me, I want to remove the veil from your eyes. If you just lift up your eyes into the hills from whence cometh your help, you're going to find some help when you look towards Jesus. Colossians 3.1 says, If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Set your affections. Set your attention on Jesus. Don't let your troubles, don't let your bills, don't let the doctor report, don't let anything else distract you from missing this moment of knowing Jesus, the Christ, the one who died and bled for your sins. These altars are open. I give you an opportunity to look at Jesus. Forgetting those things which are behind. Forget about your troubles. Guess what? The bill collectors can't get you in here. They can't find you in here. 
They might want to serve you a warrant. They can't find you at your house because you're here. This is a city of refuge. This is a place where I can lay my burdens down and leave here a lot lighter, never to carry them or pick them up again. Will you come and look at Jesus? Come and look at Christ. Look at his nail-scarred hands. Look at his battered frame and face. Look at the Savior who loves you with everlasting, eternal love. And believe in this, that he died for your sins and wants to have a relationship with you and fill you with the Holy Ghost. All over this house, let's begin just to pray, pray unto him right now. Father, we look unto you. We forget our troubles. We forget those things which are behind. And we put all things, O Lord Jesus, in the front, Lord God. We reach towards you. We press with a mark for the prize, the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus. We look towards you and you alone. You are our source. You are our help. You are our strength. You are our deliverer. And we put it all in your hands right now. I look to Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him despising the shame you need to despise the shame right now despise think little of your of all these things that you've gone through think little of the trauma think little of the pain that you suffered through and compare it to the joy compare it to the salvation compare it to the redemption that Christ has afforded to you right now in the name of Jesus hallelujah hallelujah right now in the name of Jesus father let your spirit begin to deal with our hearts fix our gaze get our attention that we might look at you and look at you alone completely and totally unabashedly unabandoned God looking at you right now in Jesus name in Jesus name hallelujah hallelujah glory to God